Welcome to the Hear It From Me podcast, where we get to know the stories of people who have found their own voice, live a life of authenticity, and help others do the same. I'm your host, Dale Likens, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you a conversation with Willie Carver. Willie Edward Taylor Carver Jr. is an advocate, a Kentucky Teacher of the Year, and the author of a collection of narrative poetry about his childhood growing up queer in Appalachia gay poems for red states recently named a book riot best book of 2023 his work exists at the intersection of queer identity appalachian identity and the politics of innocence willie is a candidate for the mfa in poetry at the university of kentucky he publishes and presents on the subjects of education marginalization and identity and his story has been featured on abc CBS, PBS, NPR, and in the Washington Post, Le Monde, and Good Morning America. His advocacy has led him to engage President Biden and to testify before the United States Congressional Committee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. His creative work has been published in 100 Days in Appalachia, Two Rules of Writing, Another Chicago Magazine, Large Hearted Boy Blog, Smoky Blue Literary Magazine, Miracle Monocle, and Good River Review. I met Willie when he was the guest at a local bookstore event where his book Gay Poems for Red States was featured. I was drawn to his story growing up gay in Appalachia and as a gay teacher in a Kentucky public school. I share our conversation during which Willie also reads several poems from his book. Here is my conversation with Willie Carver. Hey, I'm so excited to have Willie Carver with me today. He is author of Gay Poems for Red States, and uh, I met Willie a couple of months or a couple of weeks ago, and and just uh, had asked him if he would uh, talk to us here on Hear It from Me, and he said yes. So thank you, Willie. I appreciate it. Listen, the the thrill is all mine. I'm so uh, grateful to be here, and so thankful that you uh, had the time to meet me a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yes. Well. You're welcome. That was awesome. So, Willie, I met, you know, was introduced to your story first um, by a social media post where someone had shared um, a clip of you on Good Morning America. And, uh, you know, I listened to your story and watched that and was just really uh, touched by, you know, what you've been able to do and what you're doing. And, um, you know, you were a teacher of the year in 2004. 22 for the state of Kentucky. Um, and uh, I wanted to kind of begin there. You know, there's a whole lot more to that. Uh, and then you quit and you wrote the book and you're, you're doing all these other things. But, you know, what was that like? I mean, there's a got to be thousands of teachers in Kentucky and you were the it, teacher um, of the year. I don't know that I'm going to process what happened, honestly, ever. Uh, but it was incredible there. Um, so, yeah, there's 40,000 teachers in Kentucky. Um, every year, 2,000 are nominated for Teacher of the Year. Okay. Um, and when I found out that I was nominated, at that time, I knew nothing about the process. Uh, but I was... Right, okay. Uh, I, I th- well, I'm ashamed of it, but I kind of laughed because uh, I thought, yeah, they're going to choose a gay Appalachian Teacher of the Year. <laughs> um, and somehow my students found out uh, because some of my colleagues were like, that's so wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of my students said, 
yeah, like they're going to have a big gay Appalachian this teacher of the year. And then everybody laughed. And it was funny, but on the other hand, I was like, she's talking about herself, um, this particular student. And I knew she was. So I thought, well, now I have to try. Uh, Right. um, So I I used the application to sort of highlight the work that my students were doing, which was incredible work. I had um, ostentatious students and I was always there to encourage them and to tell them they could do something. And so they did incredible things. Um. And my hope was that the state of Kentucky would at least see them um, because I worked in a district that hid queer kids, um, frankly, that hid poor kids um, that would pull the, um, you know, kids who fit some 1950s model of what goodness looks like and highlight them um, and the others would be ignored. So I thought, well, this is a good opportunity. Um, And then I was in the... I actually deleted the email when I was put into the sort of top category. I didn't know what it was. By that point, I'd forgotten I'd even applied. Um, and the state had to write me and say, hey, um, did you apply? Are you planning on moving forward? And I was like, oh, this is real? Um, yes. Then, yes. Uh, then they they chose me. And I, I hadn't prepared what I would say or anything like that because, again, it did not seem real. Um, and... It was, it was, I was heartbreaking actually. Um, I basically existed. I felt like my job was one part teacher, one part lawyer or fighter. Like I would just go in every day and remind the school, here's what you're doing and why it's wrong and why you can't do this anymore. And then there would be an inevitable fight. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, having someone recognize what I'm doing as good was really hard on me. Uh, and again, I'm not saying that they're like, oh, poor me, I won an award. <laughs> right. Was, but, uh, yeah, it, the truth is it was actually pretty painful. Um, but like, once I worked through that pain, um, I was so much better for it. And I'm so grateful to have had that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Was it painful because you just didn't believe something like that could happen to you or it brought out to the forefront all this the I think, challenges? If you want I think to share I had, that. Yeah, I think I had built like a very strong wall. And I mean, I'm an emotive person. It's not like I was some sort of stoic. I don't know who I am. But like I had accepted the fact that most people were aligned against me in this world, Um, because that's certainly what it feels like when, you know, your principal and your superintendent and the most vocal parents, um, you know, the, the churches in town, I felt like it was me. And a few of my like really close friends and family members like against the world. Um, so I just thought, I guess this will be what my existence on this planet is. You know, I'll go in, I'll fight, I'll rest, I'll fight again. Um, right. And then, you know, I think I had like 900 messages in the first few days um, of people congratulating me and telling me they were proud of me. And I didn't know what to do with that. I feel like it was this giant flood that knocked that wall down. Yes. um, I get that. And it exposed the thing that the wall was trying to protect the entire time. (laughs) Yes. And that is hard. Yeah. So yeah, love can be painful for people who aren't used to it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I mean, how pissed off must the district have been? Um, or maybe they were happy that someone in there. No, they got were. It, but, <laughs> I mean, I was just thinking of everything you've said, and I want to talk about that some more. But it's like, you know, it's you know. the 
you really messed with some things for them. So, yeah. Um, and I've, I'll, there's always like the, the pretend face. So like I had my superintendent, um, smiling at my front door with the department of education and handing me this check. And I thought, uh, my experience with you has led me to feel like you really dislike me as a human being. Right. Um, every step I had taken for years, um, he found some way to oppose, um, little things, big things, um, you know, oh, there's a quote on a quiz that we think, I don't know, says the word drag queen. Let's drag you into five meetings and berate you over this and try to make you feel like you've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. Or um, I wrote a book. I actually, during during COVID, I wrote a, a book with a friend mm-hmm. um, to replace all the books that my students took. It was a, our gift to the world, basically. We were like, we were we were stuck. It was COVID. We, we felt like we couldn't do anything. So we wanted to do something. Mm-hmm. And I was... I felt like a criminal for writing this book. They were like, you know, of course you can't print this. This would be inappropriate because your name is on it and you're a teacher. And I was like, okay, well, I found outside printing. Actually, I I got these grants to give us free books, um, which is not even the same as the other. I got us grants. Um, So yeah, I think, I don't know how they feel. Uh, I can cite them the first dozen or so uh, news stories about me and them um basically read uh no comment and then after that um a particular I, I think it was um matt lavientes i think is his name at nbc um he sort of raked them over the coals in a light way for not responding and then i feel like it was after that that their response was willie carver is a wonderful teacher mm-hmm. and we wish him well um mm-hmm. but they certainly didn't appear to wish me well while i was there and i um, it's, it, that's the story of so many queer teachers I know right now, um, who are being thrown, mm-hmm. either thrown under the bus by districts right. or districts who have been sort of mistreating them all along, who now feel very emboldened about getting to do it more. And yes, I was th- thinking about, you know, what has changed, you know, when you were talking about that, or has that always been the case? I mean, I, I guess, you know, for me, I'm not in that world. And so I think, yeah. uh, you know, that, well, we're making progress. You know, I was teased as a kid in school. And, you know, I think, well, maybe kids are nicer today. And I was just hoping that, te- you know, and schools are trying to help students not be that way. And yet here, you know, you're opening up this picture or, you know, the mm-hmm. in, or showing a picture into a school district that was the opposite of what I would hope. You know, and so I was naive, I guess, uh, when I didn't think that was across the board. I don't even think naive is the right word. I think so. If if I if I use my example teaching for the last Mm -hmm. 15 years, um, it was slowly getting better over time. And up until probably the year 2016, 2017, radically better. Um, And then but I mean, it was never perfect. And I was always fighting. Other people were always fighting. Mm-hmm. but the what changed is back then so i'll give you a good example um mm-hmm. the school was hesitant about having um we, we were putting up flyers for our first annual um lgbtq affirming club 
And yeah. I must have had to have like three or four meetings about this. Uh, like, let's talk about the flyer. Let's talk about this club. You know how the community will feel. And mm. I was able to say, we have every legal right. It's illegal for you to say no. Right. And we're part of the community. Yes. Right. right. We are the, yeah. <laughs> we are um, the community. So, and, and there would be little things like that where the school would try to push back and say, you can't do this. And we would say, hey, the law. Mm-hmm. Things changed after that in two ways. One, um, the school just started ignoring what the law was. Mm-hmm. Um, I wow. think the reshuffling of Supreme Court also emboldened people. So, you know, when when my students, um, they were worried because some of their classmates had attempted suicide. And a lot of their classmates were depressed and their anecdotal evidence suggested that there was a climate issue um, in general. uh, And they wanted to uh, do a survey on this. So these kids, we met with the Kentucky student voice team to learn how to make surveys reliable, accurate, fair. We met with a researcher at the University of Kentucky, um, created a survey. They presented, um, they researched and wrote a white paper for the English department about why we should share this survey. And every English teacher at the high school said, yes, we will share this on our classroom. And then the school banned this survey because okay. in my opinion, uh, the they probably didn't want the information out. Um, like what the survey they, results would be, yeah. Right, they, did, they didn't want to know what the climate was, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. Um, so the... I, I told them, well, you can't ban my club from sharing a survey if you don't ban everyone from sharing surveys or things in class. Right. Um, and at that point, they didn't care. So they still banned it. So mm-hmm. the, the law no longer matters because I think we're seeing some extremists rewriting laws or interpreting laws. And then the other side is hatred is now a political uh, mm-hmm. excuse mm-hmm. where it didn't used to be. So yeah. um. When I had parents actively calling or insinuating that my former students were child molesters mm-hmm. because they themselves were LGBTQ, mm-hmm. um, my school's response to me when I said, this is dangerous, you should respond, um, was to say, well, we can't get involved every time someone has a you know a complaint about mm-hmm. the school. Mm-hmm. And when, you know, I would start to hear slurs, uh, getting louder and more frequent um students would basically we would send them down to the office they would send them right back and um i often heard uh people use excuses like this well everyone's entitled to their beliefs as if saying the m-word in school is now excusable because right. they're yeah so that is sort of i will mm. say most people are much better on this issue than they used to be especially students but the ones who are ignorant or yeah. hateful yeah. are really bold about it because mm-hmm. their parents tell them, I'm guessing, yeah. go be racist at school, go be homophobic at school, and they right. can't stop you because that's your legal right. And the schools are terrified to do the right thing. Yeah. That is a... I'm not sure the word I want to say. It's a sobering picture and mm-hmm. thought, but a, a kind of microcosm, though, I mean, it's a real thing that's happening across the country in some ways. I might talk a lot about rural places and rural districts, but here's the truth. It is, I've had multiple moments with supposedly progressive districts in Uh in this state that are 
desperate not to offend any conservatives. And so on, they're, they're sort of trying to play both sides, but they don't really have a firm stance and will absolutely silence queer people or queer mm-hmm. kids um, if it's politically expedient to do so. Yeah. And right now that has just become a, um, uh, a, an acceptable thing that you yeah. know, we see it all the time. We hear about it and, and we are uh, certainly the targets of a lot of, yeah. um, I just call it, you know, hateful um yeah rhetoric and mm-hmm. legislation and it's just it just and it's a, it's it, it's constant you know it feels yeah. like it feels that way anyway like the fight is constant i think you know social conservatism in the united states is about returning to a 1950s ideal mm-hmm. yes. that ideal has no space for mm-hmm. liberated black people that Right. Ideal has no space for queer people at all. Right. As a matter of fact, the space, if it was given, that like is a threat. Yes. Right. Because, you know, my existence outside of heteronormative Christianity suggests that if someone were given the choice, they would choose something else, which suggests Mm -hmm. that heteronormative Christianity is somehow not the best option. Um, As opposed to saying, you know, my choice not to be Jewish isn't an offense to Judaism, right? right. The choice right. not to be Islamic or not to be atheist has nothing to do with atheism or um, Islam. But somehow conservative Christians, as a general rule, see not being a conservative Christian as a threat to them um, yes. or an insult to them. I think they always um, have. Yeah. And we, you know, the the big fight has been abortion. Mm-hmm. And most, one in four women, I think, one in three women has had an abortion. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to malign all women who've had an abortion as somehow monsters. Um, so they, they kept that conversation on, you know, the, the fetus or the unborn child. Uh, when you malign LGBTQ people, mm-hmm. right, you mm-hmm. have they actually have no problem maligning the person themselves. Right. And they've already found this great rhetoric, which is children are being threatened. Mm-hmm. So let's just apply it to them. Um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I think that's where we are. Yeah, it soaks that fear and yeah, yes, and tries to you know I'm uh, all about uh, people whose voices have been uh, silenced. I use the word or at least attempted to be, and um, it, in this case too, in you know the LGBTQ community, it's like not only silenced but like stamped out. Like this. yes. So the conservative Christian you mentioned that. Um, that group, um, ha- you know, I think of them as having um, just in their own theology is this idea that if you're not them, you know, then you're doomed, you know, uh, and, yeah. and so they have this, you know, when you connect God to some things like that, you know, <laughs> it becomes yeah. this very, I think, dangerous thing because I absolutely agree. You know, um, that, yeah. The problem is, I think most of them aren't really doing anything while thinking about God. You know, I think it's just, we're, we're socially <laughs> yes. conditioned to hate LGBTQ people. Right. I guess Religion so. is yes. this yes. wonderful uh, excuse, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'll, I'll give you a good example. So um, the a coach at my former high school um, actually protested uh, the pride that was organized by my former students. Okay. So it was Montgomery County's first pride. It was a sweet little event at a community center. Um, so it wasn't you know, at the school. 
was not at the school at all. Okay. It was a community um, thing at this community center. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so he organized a protest, uh, to have people outside of it praying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was annoyed. Uh, so yes. thank I, you. I, I called him out and said, you know, this is pure hatred. And he said, this isn't hatred. This is just my beliefs. And I said, right. okay, so you're positing that since this is a group of people coming together who don't share your beliefs, who are doing things that uh, don't align with your religion, um, that it's okay to harass them right. or it's okay to stand outside and visibly oppose them. So you don't align with Jewish people and what they do. In fact, um, if certain religions are practicing the religion, it's actually a sin for you. So would you protest Jewish people? And because I forced him to think, to argue logically, he goes, well, of course I would. If they Mm -hmm. used our, they came to our town and I go, okay, just making sure we have this on the record. You would actively protest Jews and Muslims if they came to Montgomery County. Mm -hmm. So then of course I contacted the paper. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) of course. (laughs) And he had, he deleted everything very quickly, but I kept the screenshots. Um, And, uh, but you know, anyway, what this, this is what happens when you force them to apply what they do to queer Mm -hmm. people, to anyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, Because they'll claim it's not hatred, but they would never do to anyone else Mm -hmm. or not yet. Right. It's after Uh, they silence us. Then they'll choose them. There'll be someone. Um, Yeah. yeah. It's almost like, you know, if, you know, my religion tells me I can't do something, however I define that, let's say like, because it's a sin. Yeah. Then, um, no one else should do that either because and mm-hmm. it's like but anyway yes so it's so funny because it's it flies in the face of one of the basic tenets of christianity as nearly all denominations understand it which is this idea of choosing yes <laughs> right free will and yeah. all of yeah. that yes uh yes so oh, funny to me oh my gosh so your school district is at least you know one place uh, uh where your voice was you know they attempted to silence you um mm-hmm. i'm gonna invite you to talk if you will about that more or and yeah. or or and or add you know where else you know how have throughout your life even have you felt that if yeah. you have i'm making an assumption but i know it's um, happened in this it's a fair assumption yeah <laughs> so, no, the school district yeah. absolutely um you know when when i had those books are such a sore subject for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a, a teacher down in Southeast Kentucky um, who interestingly enough was also gay as from what I remember. Um, but he might not, he might not have been, but I think he was, but he also wrote a Spanish textbook for his students um, and actually published it and was making money off of it. And the school district purchased the books for the students um, but they were so excited for him and they, there was, you know, fanfare and I was, you know, Moorhead, he was also a Moorhead State alum. So I was getting all of these like emails about how wonderful it was that he'd written this book. And I thought like my school is terrified. It appears uh, yeah. for legal reasons. I always have to say things like it appears. Um, <laughs> my school was, it, you know, would not let me give books to kids that I had written as a gift to them. You know, it's not like these were like gay French and the penis, you know, right. these were Books that taught you classroom objects like pencil and television and eraser, um, you know, that that were funny. Um, but I think 
personally that it was because it was my voice. Um, it was because it was a queer voice and my visibility was a threat to them because they would be associated with me. And then of course I get you know, named teacher of the year. Um, and yeah, that's the hard part is I feel like sometimes I'm saying like, I deserve to be listened to, but I knew what I was for my students. Yeah. I was weird. That's teacher. Okay. Um, and you were so, a safe space for them. Safe well, and, for... And, and what happened to me happened to them. That yeah, was the, yeah. made me furious. Right. Because if they're silencing me, then my students see an adult who gets silenced. Yeah. Um, if, if I'm fighting to be recognized, it's so that queerness can be recognized. So, you know, we have a bass fishing team and that bass fishing team must have events every week because every week the school publishes like, yay, bass fishing team, third place in the semi-local regional championship or whatever. <laughs> I met the president of the United States. Yes, I, I was going to get to that. Yeah. Yes, There yeah. wasn't even an email about it. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, so, oh my like, gosh, really? Like, I'm just, what, did, you know, did I, was there a board meeting where they gave me a certificate? Yes. Um, I don't know. I, 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 it, it's hard to talk about it because it feels like I'm saying, oh, I deserve all these things, but I just wanted my queer kids to get a win, you know? Right. Yeah. Because I have gotten email after email after email from gay men in particular, but queer people in the state who say, wow. It felt like a win. Yeah. Um, You're there and, for a lot more people. Yeah. And if we lived in a different world, right, then mm -hmm. it wouldn't matter that a queer person yes. was chosen, right? right but right. the thing is, I know what it's like to be a gay teacher. Um, I know what it's mm -hmm. like to be a gay anything in the state. Mm -hmm. um, the, the likelihood that we're going to be overlooked or not chosen is really great. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I also do work for the American Federation of Teachers, and I can't tell you how many queer teachers have to come for help. Um, wow. Sometimes it is downright dangerous situations mm. and these mm. schools over and over and over do not listen to them or seem to care mm -hmm. um, how dangerous the situations are. I had no, I, so I had no idea that when you talked about writing a book, I, for your students, uh -huh. somehow my brain, you know, I immediately went to that. It was like a book to encourage your LGBTQ students. I don't know. I just went there. So that just blows me away when you're like, you, yeah. you took so that this away was... from me and you're talking about just helping them yeah. know French. Yeah. This was you're a queer voice. They wouldn't do it. This book was called. So our book, our own book was called discovering French. It was printed, I think 2001, um, and had clearly been written in the late nineties. Uh, so it was already like really out of nowhere. <laughs> um, and the kids took them at COVID. So I knew right. we're, that's it. I've, I've been asking for books for a long time. We're never going to get them. So a friend of mine, who's a professor of French at Moorhead and I, we bubbled together. She actually stayed at my house for weeks on end. So like in our minds, like we're doing this big gift. Uh, you right. know, we eight hours a day for 60 days, 90 days. I don't, it was a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a lot of work to write mm -hmm. a textbook. Um, so yeah, it's, it's two French textbooks, Bon Marche, Meilleur Marche, it's 800 pages. Mm -hmm. I found outside funding to, um, print them outside funding, um, to repeat this process. So the idea was 
we made nothing, no money. We would sell it uh, at the cost of printing so that it would be cheap. Mm -hmm. um, and that way it could still be a gift. And the idea would be every student, every single year would get a copy that was theirs and they could take home um, so that we didn't have to keep repeating it and so that they could feel it was theirs. Mm -hmm. um, and that they banned. That They're, was threatening. First, it was because it was my name was on it. First, it was that they didn't have funding. And then I was like, oh, wait, no, I have funding. And then it was, well, your name is on it. And then I was like, well, here's a bunch of other teachers who have their names on books. I don't understand. And then it was, well, it's it hasn't been approved by the state of Kentucky. So then I wrote the state of Kentucky and they were like, we don't even do this anymore. And I was like, well, give me the process. So there's a like a hundred page process uh, left over from the vestiges of textbook bulk purchasing and recommending in the 90s i did yes. the process um and then the response was well it hasn't been approved by sitebase um so then i went to sitebase and i didn't realize how i wasn't very political yet yes. so when they were like well we think we should vote on this later then i had to like really start pushing and um finally sitebase approved it um, and then I read an email and was like, okay, I've done all the steps. May I please print my book? And they didn't respond um, and refused to respond from my perspective. So yeah, that was that. They also, my students took a proficiency test called STAMP. Um, this it basically measures your proficiency in a second language. And um, my students scored really well. So 93% of them scored proficient. Um, everyone took it, all of them. Uh, these were regular students, not honors or you know anything else. And um, in a lot of schools, that test would excuse them from having to take foreign language at all. Um, oh, that's so great. It was, yeah, and I paid for it out of pocket for any student who couldn't. Yeah, they banned me test. Um, okay. Yeah. So why? Um, I don't know. I think it's because I sent Just... an email congratulating myself. I guess. Like, yes. I sent <laughs> like, hey, we did really well on this test. We and must silence him. Yeah, and it wasn't very long after that I get an email that said, or I, I get a phone call actually, yeah. um, telling me that uh, I can no longer give the test. Okay. So. Oh my gosh. Well, you you grew up in Kentucky, right? I mean, and yes. um, you know, I uh, so resonated with uh, you know, I've heard you speak, and then we've connected personally, and I've read your book uh gay poems for red states and so connected with the images and the you know you called your 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 mammal you know your mammal your mom your dad uh you know you mentioned um as among some others and i just you know tell me what that was like who was on your side you know who was, was rooting for you in in your early mm -hmm. life and um yeah you know part of that the complexity of that question is like what am i you know when you say you or oh yeah someone okay roots for me you right. know what me is showing up at the table um sure because the truth is the more me that showed up the less the rooting happened um but my mom always always uh was rooting for me i think one of the interesting things is you know i just wrote a collection that was true to my experience. I don't think mm -hmm. I was thinking in terms of protagonists or antagonists or right. anything, but I think my mom is pretty consistently, you know, a good angel um, because that's what she is in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and so it shocks me that she has like since apologized multiple times 
because she feels like she had somehow failed me mm-hmm. um, because of some of the experiences I had as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to remind her, like, no one in the 90s knew any of these things. Right. Um, even now, I have to write this book because people don't know these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't hold yourself responsible. Uh, what you were was a mother who was always protective of her son mm-hmm. um, and who always encouraged him to be himself. Um, just the context of his life didn't allow that. Um, my dad equally, um, Mm -hmm. has been really supportive. Uh, so I think that's one of the reasons also I'm just, I have to write, Mm -hmm. um, being from Eastern Kentucky, being raised in a Pentecostal church and being able to say that I have two parents who in no way tried to keep me from being anything else or silence mm-hmm. me um, who in no way directly traumatized me. Yes. That's extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, I don't know anyone else who fits those criteria personally. Um, most people I know, even if they still have good relationships with their parents were traumatized by their parents trying to make them be something else. Yeah. Um, like were there times my Dad might have been embarrassed of me when I was a kid, probably. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's mm-hmm. true for a lot of kids, too. Yeah. Yeah, that was true for me, too. And I, um, not the support part, but the, the, the embarrassed part. And I know that, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I um, uh, I said I resonated earlier, but I, and the reason is, you know, my uh, family is from Appalachian, Ohio, Southeast Ohio, but directly from Eastern Kentucky, um, moving around World War II era to uh, find work in factories uh, in Springfield and then coming back down. So um, it wasn't very long ago. So it was just a big part of my growing up, even traveling back to uh, my Goffin County in Kentucky uh, on decoration day uh, mm-hmm. in May, uh, to go to all the family gatherings and stuff. So mm-hmm. anyway, it was, a uh, you know, so I did connect with that. I'm going to ask if there's, uh, does this be a good time to read a poem from Absolutely. Gay Poems for Red States? Maybe one about that or whatever comes to your mind. Yeah, uh, about some food. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, well, food I is just a speaking, great way we connect. This is this is where my brain has not spoken. You were talking about McGoffin County. The first thing I always think about is chocolate gravy when people reference McGoffin County. <laughs> Did you all happen to have that? Honestly, no. I don't know about chocolate okay. gravy. On, I never grew up with it. Uh, frankly, the idea I'm still trying to get a hold of. Yes, I've uh, heard about it. Never it. Had. Yes. <laughs> but every, everyone I know from McGoffin County talked about chocolate gravy. Okay. Um, and I, I was offended. Um, <laughs> but uh, right. yeah, we can... Uh, we can talk about family and uh, protection. Um, okay. How about neck bones? All right. Yes. That's a pretty Appalachian one. And um, so my, when I was very young, I think I was probably, not even very young, the entirety of my childhood, I was closer to my mom's side of the family, which I think is mm. also pretty normative. Um, Me too. And yes. we would some, yeah. Uh, but now I'm oddly, trying to get closer to my dad's side of the family um, because they're more open-minded. But this one is from some of those beautiful early moments. It's called Neck Bones. Neck Bones. The more I know, the more I know that I know very little. But I know a few things for sure. And I would bet everything I know that no princess ever had a neck bone. 
but I had a lot of them at my mama and papa's house. My mama and papa's old wooden house was elderly before I was born. The porch slouching over and its crooked back in front of the door. The arthritic bones of the ceramic heaters cracking in the cold mornings. The uneven windows denser and heavier at the bottom because of a life of storm, snow, wind, and crying babies. I suppose the same thing happened to my aunts. When I spent the night there, I slept on the couch and would unfold myself from sleep at the beckon of the preaching wall of warmth that grew from the heater that my papa would fill with kerosene during mystical early morning hours that I'd only heard about from adults. My mamma wore a red bandana on her head and played Ralph Stanley when she swept the carpet. With each powerful shove of the broom, dust would swirl in the kerosene warm front dancing in the morning sun that squeezed in through the old windows. And Mamaw would pick me up, still wrapped warm in my couch blankets, and deliver me to the kitchen table because she said the floor was too cold for my feet. Morning or evening, biscuits or beans, everything she made was covered in gravy or sauce because both surround everything until it becomes part of something bigger. Love is enveloping, and everyone knows that in the mountains, Homemade gravy is love. Neck bones exist deep in that old knowledge. She always served them in an ancient sage-colored glass bowl that faded towards the lip like it was just too worn for color. Paleontological proof of decades of grease, heat, steam, and soap. They splashed about in the bowl, floating on a thin horizon of grease. Hurled, flattened globes of translucent liquid life that soaked into the white muscles of the half-drowned potatoes, bobbing between the fleshy bones. I don't know why she gave us forks. Eating neck bones meant abandon, a complete exorcism of rules and regulation. You'd have to hold tight to the slippery bones, then grasp the meat with your teeth, pulling slowly until you caught hold of the gristle, and then rip away. Grease, juice, gristle, and tater falling onto everything. Sometimes you'd have to spit out tiny bones if you pulled too hard, and sometimes you'd get a big satisfying bite that would make you feel like you'd vanquished a long-known foe. Eating neck bones and taters is the culinary equivalent of saying ain't and meaning it, as strong as a cuss word. They used to do altar call, and long-skirted women with wooden guitars would sing that I was good enough to talk to God just as I was. Covered in grease and bones and potatoes, prepared by someone who carried me to the table, necessarily meant that I was loved exactly as I was and would need nothing more than hunger to take this communion. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let me just say now, your, your craft of words is just beautiful. I appreciate listening. Thank to you. you. Oh, I it's could. A, go ahead. I was just, it, it amazes me what the little boy who wrote this book remembers. Uh, yes. What he felt, what he smelled, what he tasted, what he saw. And uh, when I let him sort of take the keyboard, uh, when I let him take the brain, um, there was no detail too small for him. Yeah, it was right back there, you know, yeah. right there. Yes, and I was too. I could just picture everything you were saying, and and even the, you know, the translucent grease <laughs> floating in the <laughs> bowl. <laughs> uh, wonderful. Um, so tell me about writing, uh, gay poems for red states. Um, where did the idea come from, and you talked about um, the little boy. I'm, you know, his, yeah. his voice is the book, I think. 
Uh, I agree. And um, it's funny. I, there were some people in my town um, who were actively, I guess, coming after me is the, the easiest way to say it. Um, when I, I think they were upset that there was a gay teacher of the year that hit, that I would dare be gay, mm. dare say that word. Um, and so they started going first to board meetings. Um, and it, it was this, it was the groomer narrative. I think that we've heard a million times now that somehow yeah. my very presence was inappropriate, um, that I was a harm to students. Um, and I mean, it wasn't easy, but it was easy enough to just ignore them and say, well, these are just crazy people. Um, then they started going like intensely into my like social media and, um, sharing pictures of me. Um, the, the, the scary part was when they started going after my students. Um, so they started sharing pictures of them at their after school jobs, um, and it was it was terrifying. Uh, parents were writing the district, begging them to do something. Um, one person literally, I can I can see the email in my head. Um, the the parents of a queer child wrote, "They're calling the teacher of the year a pedophile. Do something!" And do something was in all caps. Um, and they did nothing. Um, and I sat down to write an angry email. And instead I wrote the first poem. Okay. <laughs> um, so I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting oh my gosh. to write this right. angry email. But, you know, I think I was, I was a kid who loved school. School mm -hmm. was magical to me. You know, my parents are, they're both extremely hardworking. Um, I don't know anyone. Uh, my, my mother raised all of us and is now raising all of my nephews. Um, she's an exhausted person who just gets up and does it all again every day. Um, but you know, hard work wasn't enough, um, back in the nineties. So we had, there were times when we didn't have electricity, mm -hmm. The school had electricity. There were times when we didn't have running water, but school had running mm -hmm. water. There were times when we didn't have food, but mm -hmm. school had food. Mm -hmm. And so from that perspective, it was already this sort of magical place, um, where there was never want um where the the need was met and then on top of that just the education of it uh was beautiful um my teachers like i, I felt like they were magicians we right would come yeah. in and not know something and they would look at a room of 24 people and say all of you will know it you know and then they would mm -hmm. they would do their spells at the front <laughs> yes. of the room and then we would all go out and you knew it, it. yes yeah. <laughs> so like that that potency that right. um that that life force mm -hmm. that like every day we're going to do something. It it was not part of my, my regular life outside of school. So I adored it and they cared for me. Uh, my teachers were watching out for me when there were holes and gaps in my life, they were there to fill them. So I think there was a little boy who on the one hand knew what school was supposed to be. And I think he was furious at seeing a school let mm -hmm. harm come to children mm -hmm. for political purposes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think also there was a little boy in me who was silent for years mm -hmm. so that I could live. Yeah. Um, and I think he really wanted to finally get to talk. Um, so I, I didn't know what was happening, only that I had written a poem. And then suddenly I wanted to write another and another. 
Um, and this little boy was writing. Um, and in fact, there were, there were literally a few times when I would write a sentence and I would think, wow, that is, whew, that is an emotional sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, I would go to erase it. Um, and I could feel him mm-hmm. me saying, don't erase me. Everyone erased me. And I wouldn't. Right. Uh, right. So I, I had no belief that this would get published because I thought, people are going to look at it and say it's too much or it's too emotional. And it was nice just to write um, so that someone could speak. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, thank you for letting him do that. Thanks for listening to this episode of hear it from me podcast. Tune in for the rest of Season 1 and check out my other content on Substack, where I write the Unlearning blog, and get in touch with me as well as find the link to buy my memoir, Hush Child, Finding My Voice and Breaking the Silence, through my website, dalelikens.com.